Welcome to the DLA Piper Global Compliance and Investigations podcast. In this series, we will discuss market and legal insight and explore the latest trends and challenges facing businesses today and how they must evolve to meet them, both in the short and long term. In each episode, you get the latest views and insights from DLA Piper's leading lawyers. Welcome, everybody, to the third episode of our podcast. I'm Patrick Rappo, partner at DLA Piper London and co-chair of DLA Piper's Global Compliance and Investigations team. In this episode, I talk to Morris Burke, head of Investigations Asia, Christian Shoup, partner in our Frankfurt office, and our former colleague, Sarah Ellington, about all things ESG. In this episode, we'll be discussing the impact of environmental, social and government factors on your business, ESG, and the growing regulations around ESG. We'll talk specifically about ESG in relation to your compliance programme and what to be aware of to limit your exposure to the growing regulations and litigations. So really, to kick us all off, Sarah, if I can hand over to you, what on earth is ESG? You know, <laughs> tell us the basics. So I like to visualise ESG as if it's a kind of overarching umbrella or lens through which a corporate's actions are evaluated on environmental, social and governance issues. So it certainly doesn't replace existing law and regulation. And a number of those E, S and G areas are already governed by a plethora of existing law and regulation. But this kind of sits over the top of that existing piece in an overarching framework. And often it's directed as much to process things like due diligence, prevention, mitigation and access to remedy as it is to specific issues or outcomes. Interesting. And just on that, Christian, you and I work in the sort of investigations field and corporate crime. Is there a tendency to convert existing ESG criteria into penalty-based corporate-type obligations of the type that we come across with sort of compliance programs and corporates on, on a daily basis? Uh, yes, thanks, Patrick. Uh, yeah, we have seen a great development here. Coming from a German-European perspective, we can see that many topics that used to be seen as ASG criteria have now been incorporated into hard and even palliative laws. I'm thinking of the German supply chain law, for example, but also of the European Whistleblower Directive. You may all know that the implementation of it, it has become a big issue, not only in Germany, meanwhile. So what does it mean for companies? That means as a company, it is very important to keep an eye on the development of ESG criteria in order to be able to react to legal requirement in good time and also to have an eye on your own compliance system if you cover all this new ESG criteria in practice. And Morris, from an Asia PAC perspective, what are you saying on this sort of tendency to convert, you know, sort of existing criteria into corporate obligations? Is that something that you're coming across there? Patrick, I think it's happening, but it's very inconsistent. I mean, firstly, it's difficult to talk about Asia Pacific, all of the jurisdictions within Asia Pacific, as if they have a, you know, a consistent level of regulatory sophistication. I think there are jurisdictions which are following a process as described by Christian, but there are also a lot of very major commercial centres in Asia where they are way behind in terms of the so-called ESG criteria. And I think the overall 
the overall analysis, you know, the answer to your question is it's extremely inconsistent and patchy. And Sarah, just looking at it from the sort of transparency angle, what are you saying in relation to sort of enforcement of those duties? Yeah, so I think a lot of the kind of regulatory activity or, or planned regulatory activity so far has focused on bringing more transparency to the actions of corporates. And I think a lot of that has been in response to maybe some of the litigation activity where we've seen claimants finding it difficult to necessarily show, for example, what might be in a company's supply chain. And to date, that focus on transparency has meant that there hasn't been a lot of penalties that have been imposed, certainly at a government level. And a lot of these types of schemes are also not necessarily particularly well funded at a state level either. So that kind of level of scrutiny has been provided by civil society organisations in quite a number of instances. But I think with that growing transparency, whether it's through companies complying more with the kind of transparency obligations under soft law standards, or because of this move to regulatory transparency, it does seem to be providing more kind of routes into litigation. And I think we'll have a corresponding growth in litigation regulation at the same time. Sorry, a corresponding growth in litigation. Now, certainly that's something which we're beginning to see already. But what about in terms of sort of buy-in to these transparency soft requirements which are out there and buy-in generally to the importance of ESG in the wider sense, both at the sort of central hub and then in the the developing regions. Morris, I know you said that Asia-Pac is obviously a, a multitude of different countries, but just covering those countries, what are you seeing there as to the buy-in or, or are you seeing any? Look, it's very interesting, Patrick. I mean, you know, we see what would I guess I'd call imported regulatory obligations in a traditional sense in antitrust and anti-corruption. So, you know, for decades we've seen central brain in some other part of the world imposing regulatory will on operations in Asia and Southeast Asia. And I think that's certainly the case when it comes to ESG. We certainly get the distinct impression that as ESG objectives and criteria are being embraced in Europe, in the US, and in some of the sort of sophisticated North Asian jurisdictions, they want those ESG criteria to be deployed in the developing markets. I think that's where, in many circumstances, a problem begins, because that sophisticated sense of what should be happening is often a disconnect when it comes to the compliance resources, the ESG resources, and just the state of the jurisdictions in, for example, Southeast Asia, which are often well behind in terms of more traditional metrics like anti-corruption, antitrust, modern slavery, even just simple employment rights. So I think we see something of a disconnect between central brain in the sophisticated markets and the reality of the ability to actually pursue ESG criteria in Southeast Asia and other developing markets? Well, certainly I don't think it's necessarily restricted to there. I think even in the developing markets, what we're seeing is, you know, a difference between companies. You know, those that are taking it much more seriously see it as very much a reputational thing, being open, honest, ethical, and others that prioritise it a lot less. So really just moving on from there and just looking at uh, you first, Sarah, do you think ESG issues should take priority 
over other issues, such as, for example, anti-bribery and corruption measures, which have been the, uh, the soup du jour for a number of years now. I think perhaps one of the reasons that we look at ESG as one block is because everything is very much interconnected. We can't really look at any of those things separately without having some kind of negative impact on the others. And I think it's also important to recognise that, for example, corruption goes hand in hand with a lot of the negative impacts we see on human rights, for example. So it's really not about one thing taking priority over another in terms of anti-bribery and anti-corruption versus ESG. It's about looking holistically at what the risks are and dealing with the salient risks first, the risks that are most likely to occur or that have the most damning consequences. Well, we'll come back to those consequences a little bit later because I think you've touched on an interesting point and one of my bugbears is that there isn't much risk, there isn't much skin in the game for companies, you know, without penalties being in place. I'm an old-fashioned criminal lawyer, but we'll stick a pin in that for the minute. But again, just sort of following up with you, Sarah, on that point before moving into Christian and his thoughts on it, are existing structures suitable to measure and to report on whatever objectives the company has put into place? Yeah, so I think it's important to note that ESG is a journey and everyone has to start somewhere. And it's really good if you can use some of your existing structures to deal with ESG issues. But it's important to bear in mind that the way that we look at ESG concerns and human rights in particular comes at it from a very different angle from classically how you would look at compliance structures. And this is looking at it from the impacts on the rights holders and the risks to the rights holders themselves rather than the risk to a company. So it's unlikely that those existing structures are going to be completely suitable, but it's also helpful that you've already got some structures in place that you can tweak and use better when you're taking your kind of holistic view of everything. And Christian, just sort of switching back to you, what's your thoughts on using of those structures? Because again, you and I will often come across these within compliance programmes and the like on a regular basis. So what are you saying as to their usability and what are you saying as to their actually being used by companies that you're representing? Yeah, uh, thanks, Patrick. I think when we look at uh, companies and their compliance structures, we have to say that these compliance systems are implemented in order to reduce high risk for the company. For example, with regard to tax compliance with anti-bribery, these are the typical compliance systems we can see currently within companies. So that is in the ESG area, for example, when it comes to compliance with environmental standards, there are compliance measures in place at industrial companies. But if we look maybe at financial institutions, etc., we cannot see such compliance programs for these companies in place with hard sanctions at the end of the day. So that means for the future that companies who would like to comply with all ESG objectives, they have to amend their compliance systems due to the fact that the current compliance systems are too narrow in this regard. So I think we will see a development in the next years of a lot of companies in order to meet all the criteria of ESG. 
Well, certainly there's a lot of financial transparency directives coming out in the European sphere, which um, which I think is going to be a big development in the ensuing years. And I think that will force some metrics to come into place. But that is a topic in relation to greenwashing that we're going to look at a little bit later on. So I won't expand on that too much now. But Morris, any thoughts on you before we move on? Yes, Patrick. A quick observation, I think, on the point, which is that, you know, it's been a bad year, a bad couple of years with the pandemic in terms of existing compliance structures you know, in Asia, I think. So I think quite apart from ESG criteria and objectives, I think those compliance infrastructure and compliance assessment structures have been under significant stress. So I think the problem we see at the moment is that they're not adequate for measuring compliance with some of the more traditional criteria such as anti-bribery and corruption and antitrust. And they'll fall further behind when it comes to you know, sort of newer obligations such as ESG criteria. And certainly I think you can get away with that when there's less regulatory enforcement. But now we're seeing regulators are beginning to pick up their pens and frankly their sticks again. So as a result, companies are you know likely to get beaten unless they get back on the wagon and start dealing with these things. So Sarah, moving on to you with how ESG, um, it's in a broad heading obviously, but how generically that can help with the adoption of compliance aligned practices. Yeah, I think as lawyers, it's natural for us to speak about ESG very much in risk terms. But I think it's also important to look at it in opportunity terms. And it's something that I think certainly over the last couple of years, we've seen companies really being able to galvanise around ESG as a, a concept. And we've already talked a bit about how there's this alignment between things like anti-corruption and getting that right and also getting ESG right. So for me, I think to get ESG right, you need to have alignment between three principal things. The first is strategy and values, where your company's going. The second is policies and procedures, how that gets put throughout the company, and then implementation, the real heart. You can't implement any of these things properly, whether it's a general ESG policy or your anti-corruption policies, without really getting the hearts and minds of your employees and other stakeholders who are implementing day to day. And I think ESG can really help with people understanding where you're going with these things, and as a result, really getting them on board. Oh, absolutely. And we can already see that happening now with, um, uh, and you and I have done a bit, a bit of work in relation to modern slavery and human rights. And uh, as you know, I do a lot in the anti-bribery and corruption space. And there is a huge amount of overlap between all of them. And you need the companies working together with those policies and the other trifecta of matters that you were just mentioning there. Morris, any thoughts from you in relation to this? Oh, look, I, I mean, I completely agree with Sarah's points. And as inconsistent as compliance generally, regulatory compliance generally is in Southeast Asia and Asia-Pacific generally, it's very conspicuous when corporates get it right. And that alignment of strategy, policy, procedures and implementation, when it works, it results in a corporate or a group that is compliant, is conspicuously compliant, that other corporates want to do business with, that has a good reputation, and generally has happy employees. So I couldn't agree more with what Sarah was saying. It's not easy to align those separate components, and it's particularly challenging markets where sometimes you're faced with competitors who have zero interest in any of this. But when you get that alignment 
of those components correct, it all falls nicely into place and works rather well, both in terms of the traditional compliance requirements and also the developing ESG criteria. And certainly, I think in the public sphere, it's changed entirely. You go back three decades, and the idea of ethically sourced coffee beans or organic products was, you know, something that was pie in the sky that would never take on. Now we've had a sort of paradigm shift. But Christian, any thoughts from you in relation to this? Yes, Patrick, I think I have some consideration. For example, ESG can help to prepare the company for possible regulatory changes in advance. And where we can see that compliance helps also in the past to create a corporate culture, I think ESG can also help to create a corporate culture in this regard and to be more compliant. So creating a good corporate culture is an important soft element to have a successful compliance system in the company. And me being a sort of corporate compliance and investigations lawyer, it's the hard bits that I like to see, the sort of the sticks that are in place. So possibly turning to you first, Sarah, and then Christian afterwards, let's talk a little bit about greenwashing. So I, I know that there's been a lot of sort of financial directives coming out in Europe, which say that if you're going to be asserting your green cojones, you've got to effectively back it up by being completely transparent in relation to it. So you know, talk us a bit through that greenwashing and the risks of it, you know, if you're not doing it correctly, and the ramifications, the sort of hard penalties, what are you sort of seeing as the real risks here, Sarah? Thanks, Patrick. So we started off talking, didn't we, about transparency and the increased transparency that's coming from a lot of these regulations. And that means that over time, greenwashing will be easier and easier to spot. I also often talk to clients that are annoyed because they've seen other corporates making specific claims about things, which they know can't necessarily be backed up because they've tried themselves and haven't been able to do it. So we've already seen a number of different ways in which civil society organisations who are watching corporates have tried to hold them to account using quite a number of different levers. So we've seen complaints under advertising laws, which can have criminal sanctions. We've seen criminal complaints in a number of jurisdictions. We've seen the first complaints coming through under the French duty of vigilance law as we see the other regulatory regimes coming into place, a lot of those have the ability for civil society organisations and individuals affected to make complaints and have them investigated by others. Well, in fact, I, I think just cutting across you, I, th- I think Dieselgate's an early example of this, where you know companies going out and asserting their green credentials through you know how little pollution they were causing, and they were able to be picked up both in the public's arena and then also in the regulatory arena as well. So chiming in with your point, civil society looking into things, whistleblowing, and then that sort of holy trinity of them getting it dealt with by regulators at the end of the day. Yeah, and that's absolutely reflected in terms of the kind of civil penalties as well. So certainly before we had all this regulatory activity, there's been a kind of frustration with not being able to hold corporate to account. And we've seen a a real innovative use of some of the tort claims, for example, in order to try and bring corporates to account. So there's a whole toolkit at um, civil society organisations and claimants disposal now. And Christian, anything further from you before we wrap up for this session? 
Yeah, maybe some thoughts here from my perspective with regard to greenwashing. I think reporting in, in may increase here, for example, to non-profit organizations that certify compliance with ESG criteria in return. And another way to demonstrate credible compliance with ESG criteria, for example, to customer is to create transparency through own channels such as tracking of products or reporting in social media. And when it comes to reporting, there are probably many ways to go here. And when companies have to assess what risks they are facing, I think that's not only looking at penalties. I think there's also a significant reputational risk here. Allegations of greenwashing in dangerous relationship with customers, with clients, but also if you look at the financial sectors or if you are listed on the stock exchange with investors. So in addition, as already mentioned, the first civil climate lawsuits have been filed against companies, as Sarah mentioned, that are active in sectors that are considered particularly harmful to the climate and have a reputation for not respecting environmental city standards. And a final word from Morris, as you got up earlier in the day than the rest of us being out in Singapore, so you get the last opportunity to send us off into the night. Well, th thank you, Patrick. Look, and I think it's a nice point because whilst Southeast Asia and Asia generally has a patchy compliance history and the ability to deploy these ESG criteria to this region is a significant challenge, One advantage we have in some markets, and I'm thinking in particular about Indonesia, is the extent to which a rising, educated, increasingly affluent middle class are starting to assert their you know, kind of political will. And one of the issues they hold very closely to heart is, for example, environmental. So greenwashing is a dangerous business in a place like Indonesia because you could quite rapidly find a social media campaign, physical protests, employee protests, all sorts of backlash, which may end up being followed up by regulatory action or claims. So, you know, the will of the people in the more, uh, I was going to say progressive, but the more open markets of Southeast Asia is a force to be reckoned with. And I think that you know, it's quite a good counter to greenwashing in those kind of markets. Well, that's been a fantastic session today. Thank you very much, Sarah, Christian and Morris for joining us. And I think that about wraps it up for uh, this particular episode of Does ESG Help or Hinder Your Compliance Burden? I hope that you, our audience, have got a number of great takeaways in relation to that, which is ultimately you know, keep watching this space. Things are happening. They're happening continually. And it's not just on a hard law side, but it's on that sort of reputation side within your public that'll be buying your products that'll be investing in you and that will be effectively making your company bigger and better so take this issue seriously and deal with it and you're likely to be forearmed for the future but we'd certainly love to hear from you if you've got any further thoughts on this particular episode and if you'd like us to dive deeper into any of the aspects of ESG in future episodes or have any further thoughts generally as to what other areas that we can cover but certainly in terms of our next episode episode three we'll be discussing the development of all important whistleblower program. So thank you very much for listening to this episode. We look forward to hearing your future suggestions and look forward to hopefully having you join us on further sessions. Thank you very much indeed. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the DLA Piper Global Compliance and Investigations podcast. Subscribe now through your usual podcast provider so you don't miss an episode. Thank you and we look forward to you joining us in the future.